0: We're going to be in Exodus 19, and, and we see a shift here, so I just want you to kind of see what takes place. I call this encountering God, and this is, this is the movement from Egypt to Mount Sinai, and I put here, have you ever been somewhere and you cannot wait to get back? Anyone been somewhere and you're like, I cannot wait to get back? Work? I guess if you work for the government, you feel that way. But the rest of us have been working through this all. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, you you experienced something there. Sorry, Tim, I couldn't, couldn't resist that one. Uh, you experienced something there and you look forward to sharing it with those you love or you're connected with. And I have an illustration. Um, I think it was 2007, my brother Anthony and I, we flew to China. We were um, young and ambitious and thinking we, and we, it worked for us. We connected with a factory in China uh, to produce some things for the greenhouse. But we said, while we're in China, we're going to go ahead and see some of the main sites. So we flew into Shanghai. We worked. We flew to a place called Guangzhou. We worked. And then we took a flight to Beijing. We said, let's go see uh, Tiananmen Square. Let's go see the Forbidden City, which is Emperor's Palace. And let's go see the Great Wall of China. So we took an extra day, and we did that. And I still remember seeing all those things. And when you're in another country, and you get to see something like that, Tiananmen Square, obviously... What took place there in 89 is impressive, but I remember it's, it's basically a big square. Um, you go into the Forbidden City, which is neat the first time, but by the time I was done hearing about the emperor and all his rules and what he did, I was done. Um, and I still remember this. I t- Anthony and I both were like, you know what, if we ever came back here and someone wants to see Tiananmen Square in the Forbidden City, I'd probably just walk around it, go get a Starbucks coffee, wait till they finish. Not because I don't care, but because I saw it once. But we both get on the Great Wall of China And who would have thought this is just a wall in the middle of nowhere? My one thought was, why did they build a wall to protect either side of this? It seems useless. But either way, the construction of the wall was just awe-inspiring. It was one of those things where you're standing on there, and it's hard to describe the feeling you have. Now, my brother Anthony was in great shape, and he decided we should run up the wall. Um, I about died on the Great Wall of China. I couldn't breathe because it's up in the mountains, and he's running, and he's in shape, and i 'm running and i 'm not in shape, and you know what happens to not in shape people when they run it 's not not a pretty picture and i 'm like air, I need air and he 's like i 'm not giving you mouth to mouth you 'll just die right here on the great wall, put we'll his pitch you on the Mongolian side or whatever, and let it be But... Um, It was just awe-inspiring, and so when we went back to China a couple years later, I remember everyone has to go to Beijing, everyone has to do all the other things, and I'm walking through Tiananmen Square again in the Forbidden City and thinking I'm bored, I don't care, but we get back on the Great Wall, and it's the same feeling, this awe-inspiring feeling, it's just one of those amazing um, places, And, and to be honest with you, when I think China, I would love for my kids to be able to get on the Great Wall, it's just one of those experiences that I had. to tell Heather about it. I said, I really, um, really loved being on the wall. Picked up a great North Face jacket for 20 bucks right there. Authentic. Um, right on the side there. You can get a Rolex. Everything you want right there. Plus, you get the great wall. And, and I remember, I want to get back there. But the other two places I didn't care about. Well, I want you to remember where Moses encountered God, where the burning bush was. And it was Mount Sinai. And if you go all the way back to chapter 3, he was told by God that he would be back with all the people of Israel. And it says to serve God upon this mountain, Ezekiel, Exodus 3.12. And so I just imagine here is Moses who encounters God at the burning bush. This starts everything. This is a dynamic shift for him, right? He's he's herding animals for his father-in-law. And he's told by God, you're going to go free my people. He tried to do it on his own 40 years ago. Colossal failure as he did it in a humanistic way. And now he's told by God, you're going to go back. And this is God's promise to him. You're going to come back and serve or worship me on this mountain. Well, we're coming full circle, Exodus 19. We're coming into the desert of Mount Sinai. We're coming to Mount Sinai where God had said this would take place. So look at chapter 19, 1 and 2. In the third month, that's three months after they've left, there's a lot of discussion. Is this the exact three months from the day they left? Is this the start of the month? Uh, The implication is that it's the start of the month, but you could go either way on that. When the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. And again, same day could be same day from when they left. Or same day as the start of the month, so that 's why there 's some discussion on what day it is. Just assume it 's the third month for sure. For they were departed from Rephidim, and remember what happened there. The Malachites attacked them, killing stragglers they 've struggled there, they struggle with water there, they struggle with opposition in in war, first time they 're encountering war. This is Moses putting his hands up in the air or having him held up in the air, his arm as he stands out, God brings the victory. Now they're marching in, and it says, we are come to the desert of Sinai, and you get this idea. They get to the desert of Sinai, they're pitching the tents, and then they're going to come all the way in, it says, and their Israel camp before the mount, and it's speaking of two camps, into the desert, and we're just getting this drawing closer, how much longer idea, and then we're before the mount. And so what you see is Israel coming back to a place that Moses would have been keyed up for them to be at. This is a huge milestone uh, in his mind, in in the predictions that are there. This is a turning point. Now, we know they're going to blow it. We're going to see them do that in numbers. But here Moses is saying, we're coming to worship God right where he told us told me we would come back and worship him. And what we're going to see here is God preparing them and preparing Israel to hear God's purpose for Israel. And so in this evening, we're going to touch on the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to say it up front. Um, And I forgot to get to the map here. There you go. So they're coming down and now we're coming in this area and obviously there's a question mark, but we're, we're now in this area and we're, we're, we're right at the mount. We're, we're, we're camped right there. And we're going to touch, this is when the Ten Commandments are given. I'm not going to go over the Ten Commandments in detail. I did a 10-week study on that about two years ago, so I'm not going to dive into it there. Uh, we're going to just walk through some of the things surrounding it and then dive into the covenant that's going to come after it next week. But what I want you to see is God is going to align the purpose of Israel. And just remember what Israel came out of, slavery. They came out of of pagan worship systems that surrounded them. They had no freedom to worship God. They had no information about worshiping God. They didn't understand what God's purpose would be for them. If you're a slave nation, you don't understand what your purpose is. What is God doing with me? And you're going to sit there and say, I don't think he's doing anything with me. I don't think he's using me for anything. I don't know what's going on. You feel a sense of, of this battle. Well, he's freed them. He's rescued them. He's redeemed them. And it's a topic I want to mention He's redeemed them before they get the law, by the way. They've been rescued from Egypt, and now they get the law on how they should act as redeemed people, as rescued people. Well, first we start off looking at God's purpose for Israel, and we're going to be looking at 3 through 8. We'll be reading it here. So if you read chapter 19, Moses does a lot of hiking. And so some people want to push it all together and try to make him do one hike I don't think that's accurate. I think he does a lot of hiking. God has him coming up and going down and going up and coming down and going up. And actually, one point, Moses gets a little belligerent, like we took care of it. And God says, get down and do what I tell you. And you're going to see him come down. And then God's going to actually vocalize the Ten Commandments to Israel and Moses right there. We're going to later see him go up the mountain. He's going to get the whole issue for the whole information about the tabernacle, have the Ten Commandments written on stone. Israel's going to engage in idolatry. That's later on. That's another going up the mountain. But here we're getting God's purpose. So Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself." Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Note this in your Bible, for all the earth is mine. And God makes that claim on purpose. He is no regional God. He is no just Israel's God. He is saying right here, you are my chosen people, but I rule the whole earth. It is all mine. So no one is separate or outside the realm of God. And he says, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. He comes down. He talks to the elders who speak for the people and all the people answered together. So in other words, the elders have been entrusted with this answer. But here, even in in the vernacular in Hebrew, the shift is from elders to people. So it's like he comes and talks to the elders, but this idea of all the people answering, and Scripture does this on purpose to let you know this wasn't like we feel right. Our leaders make a decision, and they speak for us, and we say, they don't speak for me. And Scripture wants to make it clear that as the elders are communing with with Moses, because honestly, Can he talk like I'm talking to you? Hey, you guys agree with this from God? And and two million people are going to hear him and respond. They had to have representation. But scripture is very clear that they did represent the people in a very real way. This is not our political system. This is the theocracy. This is is them speaking literally for the people. The people are not in disagreement about this. And that's why scripture makes us understand all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. What does that mean? Back up. Now, he's not going to the top of the mountain. He's not going to peak because he gets that at a certain time. He goes to the peak of it. But Moses is hiking. Now, I just want you to remember, he's 80 years old. But when he dies at 120, it says he's not lost any of his vigor or his strength. And so he is no 43-year-old bum that's hurt his knee and his shoulder. This guy is, is ready to go. He's in shape. He's running it. He's moving. I want you to realize, though, that Moses is heading up and down the mountain and God gives a message in charge for the nation of Israel. There is the call to be a kingdom of priests. Now, in about 10 chapters, maybe less, we're going to see the priesthood enacted. But here God is saying to Israel, you're a kingdom of priests. They're reminded, first and foremost, of their unique relationship with God and his unique care of them. He's saying, I miraculously rescued you from Egypt. He carried them on his wings. Does God have wings? No. God doesn't have form that we can understand, so he uses things that we can comprehend. And and when he says, bore you on the wings like an eagle, the idea is of of a parent eagle teaching the young to fly, and when they flounder, they swoop underneath and carry them. In other words, you weren't flying on your own, I flew you out of there. I took care of you. And it's the idea of, of a miraculous rescue. He says you're to obey him and be his special treasure on earth. But not only treasure, as God is the God of all the earth, not just them. So it's not just I'm your God, you're my people, and everyone else is nothing. It's I've chosen you out of the nations to be a special treasure. But he makes a point to tell them all the earth is God. He's no local deity. We don't walk into his village and ask, what God do you worship, Hebrews? Ah, that's our God over there. It's Yahweh. That's our God. What's your God? No, he's teaching the nation of Israel that they are a peculiar treasure to him, but he is the God of all the world, that he reigns over all, that he is the only true God. You, he's saying Israel will be the holy nation. Your role is, is to be a kingdom of what? Priests. What do priests do? And think, not just, don't think Abraham, or Aaronic priests. Think what priests would do in Egypt. What do priests do in Egypt? They minister, they led worship, they would do the sacrificing. What else do priests do? They often represent who? God. So if you're a kingdom of priests, what is Israel's calling as a nation to represent who? God. Now, I'm going to probably get it wrong. It's in 1 Corinthians 5.12 or one of those where we're called to be what? Ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? Represents. Who? Yeah, they represent. So if I'm the U.S. ambassador to China, am I there as Kenny Van Hoven? Absolutely not. If I do my job right, I represent the United States of America. That's it. I don't represent myself. I don't represent my personality. I don't represent my family history. I go in and I'm the ambassador for the United States. As I come in and I represent that country. So when you're called to be a priest, you're called for worship. You're called to minister. You're called to teach. All these things are part of it. And you're called to represent. And they would understand this. You're representing that God to the people. Who's who's their God? The one true God. And you're to represent that one true God to who? all the people. If you're all priests, it's not like you say, well, you're a priest. You represent God to me. God's saying you're all priests. You're a kingdom of priests. And so you're representing God to all that is mine. What is his? Everything. Everything. And so you get an idea of the purpose of Israel. They were representing God to the whole world. This sets up now their commitment to be kingdom of priests. He gathers the people, and what do they do? They commit to being God's chosen nation, knowing the responsibility of being his ambassadors to the world. They are acknowledging to God, we understand that your purpose for us is to be a light to the nations. Now, they're about to be sent to annihilate the Canaanites, which is what God has ordained for his glory and his purpose, but their their mindset is for his glory, they represent him and they're committing to that. It's in unison. Moses heads back up the mountain to report to God and I put lots of hiking for him, right? This is a lot of walking back and forth. God's not just trying to be mean. There's a point where God has him come to the top of the mountain, ask him a question that Moses gives an answer for that's disrespectful, and God sends him back down because he wants him to understand the magnitude of his holiness here he's going up and down to see the purpose. Uh, as you read through scriptures, you find Israel failing in their commitment. They, they do. I'm, in the, I'm reading through Judges right now uh, in my scripture reading, and it's like 80 years, good, bad, 18, bad, this one, good. They stray from God. They marry with the Canaanites. They're just all over the place. And every time I read it, I'm like, come on, get it right, Israel. And then I think to myself, how many hundreds of years have passed, Right. Because we, we read in one phrase, 80 years of good and then it's off to bad. And before you leave a chapter, you've moved through our whole history of the United States. And so then I start doing, okay, let me look through the history of the United States. And I'm thinking, man, I would not want us cross-sectioned at all. And I start thinking about one generation. I don't even want my generation cross-sectioned here on how much we've moved away from God. And so I look at this and remember that, that they're going to struggle and they're going to stray and they're going to, they're going to fall flat on their face. They're going to end up rejecting their Messiah. There's a host of things that happen, but realize that's who you are. We do the same thing, but it is a reminder of their purpose and it's a reminder of our purpose. We, as his church, during this dispensation, were called to be his ambassadors, to represent God and his redemptive plan and purpose. As a church, that is our calling. We have not replaced Israel But in the context of now, the age of grace, the age of the church, that is our calling to be his ambassadors. We are to do what exactly God's purpose was for Israel, be a light to the nations. This is our job. This is why you're here. That's why you don't go to heaven immediately upon salvation. We're left here for a purpose. And then we look, and I said, We're supposed to carry the gospel to the world. And here's my question. How well are we doing that? And I know how we work, right? Like sometimes we'll look for all the victories. Well, look what we're doing here. Look what we're doing there. Look what we're doing How well are we doing? And then I like to bring it home. I think I've shared this before. When I go to Nicaragua, being a bold witness seems easier to me in Spanish than it does in English. One, I'm not going to see these people in a week. So I can be a fool anywhere in that country and I'm out of there at some point. But you go into your regular family and friends and the people you talk to every day. How well are you doing being an ambassador for the gospel? Is it your job? Is that what is priority in your mind? Well, with that commitment from Israel, we see next God's preparation for Israel. Look at verses 9 through 15. And, and don't miss, and I'll talk about the movement of God. Who moves here and coming down versus going up? Um, and the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with thee. And that's exactly what he's trying to say. God is saying, I want two million people to hear me talking to you like a person. I want them to hear what I'm saying. He says here, And believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. In other words, I want them to understand that I'm going to talk to you and you're going to be the leader and you're going to represent this. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. God is is visibly going to come down. And there's a reason for the cleansing, and we're going to get to this idea of God's holiness and how serious we are about it. And it says, And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourself that you go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day, come not at your wives. And here's what God is doing He's sending Moses back to prepare the people. He's telling them, He's coming. This is the movement of God. And take notice of some things. Who's coming down? God came to them, God moved to them on purpose. If you look at the pagan religions, God never moves to the people. Their gods don't ever come down. Their gods don't ever relate. Their gods don't ever connect. And we've talked about this in Job, right? You got the friends who see a distant God and Job who has a relationship with God. And we have this wrestling and this struggle talking about it. Well, you read in Exodus and you recognize God relates with his people. That is unique because he's the only true God. Uh, we live at a time when most people see God as distant and impersonal, either in the fact that they do not believe in him, right? People are like, well, God, the God you talk about is distant and impersonal, and I don't even believe in him. They make fun of you. Or there's people that, that, that have a faith in a distant God. Islam is one of those. Allah is very distant, and I don't compare Allah to God. It's their God, and I use a little G on purpose because it's a false God. It's an idol. And their God is very distant from them. He is not relating to them. He's not personal. They hope to appease that God by their repetitive prayers and by doing the things that that God has mandated to bring honor to his name. But there's no relationship with that God at all. And many religions have that distant there. We live at a time when preachers are disconnecting from the Old Testament. You hit a preacher that disconnects from the Old Testament, red flag right there. I say heretic. I say they worship a God with a little G because you can't separate the Old Testament God from the New Testament God because it's the same God. And the second you make up one that's only a New Testament God, you've just made G little because you found your idol and you've created it because God is apparent through all of scripture. The second you take away from God, the second you're like, well, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And look, I read a whole book um, it was on storytelling. So one of the things that is useful in, in a, if you go to a people group that has no written language, that's, that's wrestling to understand, oftentimes you relate scriptural truth to storytelling, and scripture is a lot of storytelling. If you work with kids, I do a lot of storytelling. So I was doing a lot of research about four or five years ago, reading some books, and this one guy, talking about storytelling, and then he, he spins the God of the Old Testament into this fictional myth. It doesn't mean I didn't learn some good principles of storytelling from him, but I already knew what he, where he was. He has a little G God. He has a God of his own making, because he's not willing to accept the true God that's revealed through all scripture. What's fascinating to me is how they miss these kind of passages, because here they, they, everyone sees the Old Testament, and they see this distant, judgmental God And what they don't realize is that Christ was quite judgmental about what was coming. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. He talked about punishment and loss. Yes, he died on the cross for our sins and he's loved. So is the Old Testament representation of God. And this is one of the beautiful pictures of him coming down to a people who, let's be honest, know nothing and can give him nothing. These people are are basically ignorant of any type of true worship. They've been in Egypt a long time. They've been slaves for a long time. They have no freedom to do anything. But what do we see? We see God moving toward them in a very specific way. And You say, well, Kenny, but he's really demanding on their cleansing. They have to wash their clothes. They have to not engage in normal relationships. They, they have to change their daily habits. What kind of God does this? Well, it's a God who loves them because that holy God cannot be amongst unholiness in that sense. And so if they're going to spurn his holiness, what is the punishment for that? Death. So instead of seeing a God who's demanding, I see a God of mercy and grace because he's telling them what they need to do because he's coming down holy to be with them, to relate to them. And so what we see is a movement from God and he comes down to give them and he gives a mandate for the people. Be cleansed. Here's the word I use. Be serious about encountering God and hearing what he has to say. They need to come to grips with the holiness of God. And let's be honest, if you look at our culture, the same is required of us. I would say that as a general rule, we are too casual about God's holiness. We are too flippant about his presence. I hear too many people refer to too many country songs that have Jesus hanging out with them in too many different places, and I say, God doesn't do that. Not because God's too good for that, or God does that. it's because God doesn't do that. You've made God too casual. I'm not trying to make God any more distant. I'm trying to remind people that God is holy, and those things that drag God down to the buddy level is not that God's not relatable, that we're not taking anything away from God's relatability, but what you pull God down to as a buddy status, you make God like you. And God is not like you. God is far above you. He's far above us. And so as we look at this and we see these requirements, what should prod our hearts is to stop being casual about God's holiness. It's actually one of the things that always comes up on my mind uh, for things I want to study in small group, things is the holiness of God, the pursuit of holiness, is the understanding of who God is. All these things. Why can God not accept sin? He's holy. His love is what provided a way, not to sweep sin under a rug, but to pay for it, to 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 take care of it, because a holy God cannot allow sin. They and we need to, to grasp the magnitude of His holiness. And then this is the one big thing, and the depths of our unholiness. See, as we find ourselves to be pretty good, right? Thus, we think we want Jesus to hang out with us during the day. I think we would be crushingly embarrassed to have the holy God hang out with us in the sense that we portray it. He's omnipresent. He's there. He misses nothing. So this idea of asking God to hang out with you is just absolutely ridiculous because God is everywhere. It's a dumb request, just to be honest with you. It's, it's, it's ridiculous because he's there all the time. The reason we word it that way is because we want to make God like us, and he's not like us. Isaiah understood that. That's why he says his righteousness was as what? Filthy rags. What I think is holy I know is filth. Now that's understanding the depth of your unholiness. And they needed to have a buffer between them and the mountain. They had to consecrate themselves for two days. For the third day, God would come down. And I love those analogies. You can pick up on it. The third day rose. The third day is coming down. Scripture has some beautiful tie-ins that that weave together there. Um, Their normal practice were to cease there to be wholly committed to this time with the Lord. And then I put here, how committed and prepared are we when we come to worship? You ever thought about that? Do you ever consider it? I still remember my pastor as a teen, same pastor that did a message on prayer. If you remember, I illustrated that. A pastor, when I was a teenager in college, he preached on prayer, and it's, it's, I, I remember it. I don't remember the points of his sermon, but I remember the application of his sermon. He's also the same pastor. I remember him preaching about being prepared for worship. It blew my mind as a teenager. This idea of being prepared, Right. What do teenagers and college-age kids do? Saturday night, go hang out with your friends, right? You know, stay out as late as you're allowed to, which my family was 11, you know, and, and my dad and mom would always say, don't call, let's just be home on time. What if we're running late? You know what if there was their answer? Don't. <laughs> don't run late. Just be home on time. Just make, make that your goal. <laughs> but he said something interesting. He says, how do you prepare for worship? It starts Saturday night. It convicted me. I remember thinking, well, I don't think I'm preparing for worship Saturday night. I'm not getting into trouble. I'm just hanging out with friends, but I'm not prepared. I'll stay out as late as I can, right? Stay up as late as I can. And I'll roll out of bed and I'll brush my teeth and I'll get a shower and I'll look spiffy and nice. And I'll walk into Sunday school and I'll yawn the whole way through. And I'm going to sit at the back of the church who was small enough. That was our liberty in that day and age. I still remember when I was a kid, we sat on one row with our parents. No escape. This other church we go to was narrow. We couldn't fit on one row. Older kids could move back. I became a back row. I understand you guys' drive to have your head against the wall. I get it, right? You want to be at the back, back, back. Suddenly, as a 16-year-old, I had to go get a drink of water during every service, right? There's is an impossibility to make it through one hour. I get it when all these kids want to go, because all I could think about was you're just going to church and you're checking a box. I wasn't prepared for worship. And I remember my pastor preaching that, and I thought to myself, I don't do that. What is this telling us here? Prepare for worship. You know what that involves doing? And I'll say this unashamedly, changing your schedule and your habits. Well, Kenny, that's my night to go out. That's my night to do this. That's my night to do that. Well, God says change what you do to fit what he wants. What a novel idea. As a teen, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I can only hang out with someone Friday night? This is the, my mind. I'm wrestling with this. I still remember my pastor's preaching. I wasn't on the back row this time. I think I was two or three rows forward. I remember sitting on the right side and thinking, what? He wants me to change my life to worship? I'm not doing anything wrong. And so I still remember, again, I don't remember any point he made. I just remember his application, and I remember how bothered i was by his application it was something that just hit my mind to this day if i'm watching tv and it's late on a saturday night i feel wrong about it and i turn it off because i'm like this is not preparing for worship it's not and it's in my head and that's what the context is here what's an application for today i put are you willing to be this serious and committed to worship Are you ready to change what you do, even the things that have nothing wrong with them, because you're going to come on Sunday to encounter God, you're going to worship him. Will you change your life? Or will we say, no, I don't want to change my life. No, that's too much to ask. No, that goes too far. Will we change or will we not change? So we're all prepared for, and this is 16 through 25, God's presence among Israel. And I want you to look here. it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that were in the camp trembled. Now I want you to understand something. Thunders, lightning, thick cloud, and people in the camp, the loud trumpet is just the best we have to describe what it sounded like. It's not the actual thing that happened, it's the best we could ever do to say how it looked and felt. They had to use things that related, right? It's, 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 they didn't have the actual words for this. And so this is God coming down and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke in other words, it was completely smoking because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Fire signifies purity. And so they're seeing God come. How did, how did Moses encounter God? It was in what type of bush? A burning bush, a, burning bush, a bush that doesn't burn out, but it's fire. You're getting this connection here. Uh, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. And I just want you to get an image of what what's taking place. You have a mountain that's covered in fire and smoke. It's shaking. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's a huge trumpet, not a trumpet of come up. So don't get that mixed up. But when you hear the trumpet, you come up the mountain. It's a blaring siren letting him know God is descending. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake and God answered him by a what? Voice. In other words, this wasn't a quake. There wasn't thunder. This wasn't wind. It wasn't a still, small voice. It was someone talking to Moses. And who could hear it? Everyone. God is talking to Moses. If you're standing there, you're not saying, this is weird. You're blown away. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. This is the first time we get the the height of it. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So all of this happens, smoke, fire, thunder, lightning. This is what our, just imagine every natural calamity that just kind of taking place on this mount. Moses talks, God says to him, you come up to the top of the mountain. Then we go from there. And the Lord said unto Moses, I just want you to realize this. He just hiked to the top of the mountain. So get the, get the, he has hiked back and forth, back and forth. You got to, he has been moving, This has been a hiking adventure for him. And the Lord said unto Moses, go where? Go down, charge the people lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. Go back down and make sure they understand that I'm not joking about this. I mentioned that because I know when I finish my last point, there's a percentage of you that are going to sit there and you're going to snicker about it in your heart. You're going to think, eh, or he's a loony bin. Uh, People out there think, ah, you take it too far, you're too religious, you're too, all that. That's all in everyone, it's extrapolated out there, right? In my own heart, right? I sat there and wrestled with it when my pastor preaches about it, and it can still wrestle with it, right? The changing of life for what God wants. Moses goes to the top of the mountain, and God says, go back down and make sure they don't do that. And just in case you're wondering, is God serious about worship? and about doing it his way, and what he wants, then verse 21 should tell you that. After Moses is called to hike to the top of the mountain, God says, go down and take care of this. And it says here, and let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. he's not inviting the priest up, he's telling the priest that they also need to be sanctified. They also need to make sure they don't perish. They also need to take this very seriously. And Moses said unto the Lord, because he's sometimes a bit of a smart mouth, The people cannot come up to the mount, Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, set bounds about the mount and sanctify it. In other words, done, God, done. I did it. You ever done that with God? And a clear indication of what you need to do, and you tell God it's done in that sense of the word. And I want you to see how God answered him. And the Lord said unto him, what? Away. Get thee down. And thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priest and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon you. By the way, Aaron and him do not come up until chapter 24 together. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. Get ready for God's presence. I mentioned already thunders and lightning. That's the best description. There's a call for Moses who comes to the top. Don't miss that God is speaking to him in audible voice. Don't miss the fact that Moses has gone up and down, up and down. He is the mediator between them, back and forth, back and forth. And then God gets him climbs all the way up, and then God gives a command to Moses, go back down. Moses decides to argue. God says, get down. And here's why. God was not looking for Moses' take on the heart of the people. He was not looking for Moses to confirm to him that, yes, I've done it. This is not me going out to the guy doing the roof and saying, now you replaced the plywood like we talked about. You're putting nails in every one of them, right? That's me getting assurance because I just want him to say it one more time and make sure he's committed to it. God already knows what's going on. We've established that with a mountain that's quaking, burning with fire, smoking like a furnace, thunders and lightning. God is not wondering what's going on. And Moses treats God... Like, Fernando treats me. Yes, Kenny, we're doing everything we talked about. Leave me alone, loser. Let me work, right? That's just the idea. That's not what God's not. Moses responds that way, and God reminds him. He's not interested in what you think the people are ready for. God knew the people by their heart, and he knew they needed more instruction and guidance there. Guess who else needed some more instruction there? Moses did. How do you answer God? Maybe his heart wasn't ready yet it down. Make sure it's right. Moses needed more direct obedience. And I put here, ever feel like you've done what God has asked, so when he directs you to repeat it, you attempt to talk over him? You ever done that? I've ever told, I've told, my, well, kids are all different, right? Um, and you can imagine, in my family, we're all a bit of talkers. They're just genetically in, uh, predisposed to be able to speak. Uh, but some of them are, are better talkers than others. And my youngest son is a talker. He's smooth, but he talks a lot, and he likes to talk over you. And so there's times I'll tell him, be quiet. Just be quiet and listen to me. I don't want to hear your take on it. He has a take on everything. You can test this out. He has a take. But that's what Moses was giving God. God, got it. I, you, I, and God says, no, don't talk over me. And I hope you can see just how easy it is to think too highly of ourselves. Moses talked back to God, and he was corrected for it. But here's what's interesting, and this is what I love. He obeyed. He went back down, which is exactly the response we need when corrected by God in the execution of ministry. And that's important to remember. Moses was doing what God had asked. What did God tell him to do? Come up the mountain. And then God says, go down the mountain. That's frustrating. I don't care who you are. That's frustrating. He did what God wanted, and now you want more from me? You want me to go down? You couldn't tell me this at the bottom of the mountain? You couldn't bother? But he obeyed. And I put here, are we going to obey God when corrected in the execution of his ministry, because that's what it is, no matter what our take on it is? And I just want you to realize how hard it is to take correction and I don't think it was easy for Moses at this point in his life. But as we close this chapter, God has made it clear to the people and to Moses the seriousness of his holiness. Moses stands now with the people. Listening at this point together, God has elevated Moses above the people. He says, he is my mediator. He's my person. But what is Moses not? He's not God. And we're about to get how God wants his redeemed people To act and live. And if you think about it, the appropriate place for Moses when God gives those commandments verbally is to be with the people because he's one of the people. And so he is not distinct and with God because he's not God, nor should he be viewed that way by the people. He's not to be worshipped. And at this point we get God's prescription for Israel. This is chapter twenty. 1 through 21, and this was fascinating to me because this is not the easiest portion to walk through. One, I think in chapter 19 alone, Moses goes up and down the mountain four times. So the temptation is to think that it's one time, and God decided to give his word and split it out, and because we think, why would God call him up and down the mountain this many times? But then you realize it's exactly what took place, there's, there was, and there's movement here, because it starts with, this is your purpose, and then this is your preparation, and the presence of God is coming because he's about to give the prescription to Israel. What do they need to do as his redeemed people? And what you see in 20 through 21, God speaks to the people, and he gives them first the Ten Commandments. Now, I wrote in my notes just to remind me, I've done a 10-part series on them, I'm not going to repeat the Ten Commandments tonight, I took 10 weeks to do it, so... Some other time, I would love to say they were recorded. They weren't, so you can read my notes if you want them. I can give them to you. Um, however, I want you to notice a couple things about the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read through them, and then we'll kind of talk through some components of them. And God spake, spake, not wrote, spake all these words, saying, and he's saying it to all of them, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. In other words, keep the Sabbath day with everything you own. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. Don't be greedy, want, jealously, envy thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's, not his car, not his salary, not his portfolio not his state, not his airplane, not his anything. Don't envy. It goes on, and then 18 through 21 in the prescription is the response of the people to it. I'm going to talk first about the giving of the Ten Commandments. Notice the law was given after they were rescued from Egypt. The law was not the way of rescue, but instead the way to live as the rescued redeemed people should act in this way. That's what God's saying. This is not given to them in Egypt, and that's done on purpose. It's given to them in Mount Sinai after they've been freed from Egypt. God has miraculously taken them out, and now he's saying, as my people do these things. Notice the law is not limited to one custom, time, or geography. These laws have a universal character. As Bernard Ram says, they are transcultural. They Transcend. Why in the world are they carved everywhere in the United States? They have bearing. These laws are based on redemption. They need to be seen and taken as a whole. So a lot of people love to ignore the first four and keep the last six. It's impossible. You have to keep the first four to understand how to keep the last six. First four commandments deal with humanity's relationship and worship of God. How do we interact with our Lord and Savior? The last six commandments deal with humanity's interaction with each other. These are all a covenant between God and man. It's it's an agreement. It's a binding contract. It shows a higher authority than ourselves. That's the critical thing. The Ten Commandments, or as in actually Hebrew, it's ten words is what it's called. The ten words. These show that God is the standard. We are not. Our culture doesn't see it that way. Our world says we are the standard. We We are the foundation. We set the absolute. What does the world say? There are no absolutes. That statement is an absolute statement. It's one of the dumbest things someone can say because logically it falls apart. If there are no absolutes, you can never proclaim there's no absolutes because that is an absolute statement. What really they're saying is, I tell you my absolutes or that my absolutes can be different than your absolutes. My standard is what sets the standard. And God says in his law, no, my standard, God's standard, is it? And I put here, we see a call for holiness, an overarching principle in the law. And we see it in Leviticus, be holy for why I am holy, right? Is that repeated in the New Testament? Better believe it. Well, if you're studying the Bible and you see something repeated, specifically repeated from one Testament to the next Testament, how important do you think it is? It's all important. But when God repeats himself in multiple dispensations, not changing his mind about it holiness that's the idea as we've been driven to this as they've been given the rules that they've sanctified themselves as moses has had to climb the mountain and go right back down again immediately even though god could have told him at the bottom of the mountain exactly what he wanted but he wanted him to see the weight of his holiness to understand it to understand obedience it's all about holiness and his people or a holy nation called to be his priests representing a holy God, and to represent a holy God, we should live in holiness. Thus, as you look at your Christian walk, and, and, and you, you see some of the, the, some of the better authors or theologians in the last hundred years have been writing about the holiness of God, because it is critical to living the Christian walk. Now, these commandments are spoken out loud to the people with Moses standing among them. So verse 18, what do you get? And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. In other words, as they watched all of God's presence coming down, they backed up. God set boundaries so they wouldn't break forward to the mount. They're not breaking the boundaries. What are they doing? They're getting away from the boundaries even. They're saying... Whoa, this is an awesome God. And they said unto Moses, speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Why are they saying that? And a lot of people take it as them not having faith. Actually, they're they're recognizing something about themselves. What do they see themselves as? Sinners and unholy. They're seeing themselves as God sees them. We should see ourselves the same way. So it's not them saying we don't want nothing to do with God. It's them saying we recognize how unholy we are. We're seeing ourselves the right way. Then Moses is going to say unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, test you, see, and that his fear may be before your faces, so you do what? So you don't sin. That, that the presence of God's holiness is not this horrible, dark, Instead, it is brilliant light that will help you not sin. As you're in the presence of God, as you're come to worship him, as you see him, and I'm using that word with quotes in that context, it is so that you don't sin, so that you are acting as your savior acts, and that's in holiness. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near under the thick darkness where God was. So, Moses is listening to them. God never reprimands the people for this. Moses comes in to now the presence, closer to the presence. And what we're going to see next week is we're going to see the unfolding of all these civil and ceremonial laws. I love the fact that this first 10 words, Moses is receiving them with the people. And then as they, and I put here as the the weight of this, the gravity of, of the people, which was a good thing, as they sensed this, Moses is then sent back as the mediator to get all the other laws, which encompass a whole hoopla of things, and then we're going to see Aaron moving up, and we're going to see Moses then ending up on the mountain for 40 days, and then Israel's is going to blow it yet again proving why they need help all the time with the golden calf and Moses is going to intercede. So all of this is part of the same camping and movement, but we've had a lot of movement up and down and we've had God vocalize his law in words that they understand. But understand the gravity of the people. They felt the weight of God's holiness and it's expressed by their recognition that they are not holy. They understood the significance of God's word and the significance of God speaking. God's Word is in our hands. How do we approach God's Word? Does it bring the weight of His holiness to us? Or do you go to God's Word to find the thing you want to manipulate about God or your life to make yourself feel good about what you're doing? God's Word is confrontational. It is Him speaking to us, magnifying Himself, showing His glory, showing His holiness, so that we respond. We change because of it. They desire the mediation of Moses Thus, God perfectly establishes his position, and they recognize, more importantly, their lack. Moses reminds them, as he should do, that God is doing this to help hinder sin, which is the most merciful thing God can do. What is the consequence of sin? Death. Death. So a merciful God is going to come down and hinder death. We have a world that says, God comes in and ruins my fun because we've redefined sin as my lustful desires and whatever I want to do. And so God is the fun killer. And Moses is saying, God is the sin killer, which is merciful and gracious of him. The opposite would be to say, do whatever you want. Sin till death. That would be ugly and hateful. And Moses is trying to help them see this is for your good because it comes from a good God and a gracious God and a merciful God. Moses goes to the dark cloud and will there get the rest of the laws, the civil and ceremonial ones. Put as an application, Israel is at Mount Sinai where they're going to remain for the rest of Exodus. Here Israel is confronted with the holiness of God and their called out responsibility. They're struck with the weight of his glory, majesty and perfection. They are his redeemed people, and he expects them to act and live that way. So are we. We're expected to act and live as his redeemed, and are we prepared to act and live as God's redeemed? Does it get the proper weight it deserves? Or do we say to God, hey, leave my life alone. It's my life. I do it my way. I don't want to change what I do. I don't want to address your holiness. I don't want to think about your holiness. I'm as happy with you as a holy, distant God. Here's the reality. The one true God is holy, and he is not distant. Now, if you are in rampant sin, then his holiness is something that affronts you, scares you, angers you, causes rebellion in you. That's what we see in the world. They cannot distance themselves from God. They just rebel against God. As believers, were called... And as Moses said, this is for your good. So as we move on, next week we'll be in the the civil ceremonial laws, and then we're going to dive into the tabernacle and the priest. And the tabernacle is fascinating because God gives the instructions for what to do, and then four chapters later at the end, God says how they did it, and it's exactly the same as how he said to do it, which is a really important point. Do things exactly how God wants them done. He is very precise God is not casual about this. He's not tossing, hey, just do what you think's best. Yeah, figure it out. God is very clear about what he wants, and we're going to see that. Uh, So we're going to work through it. We're going to watch Israel stumble in a mighty way and see how we do the same thing and then kind of close out Exodus. That'll be over the next couple weeks. Uh, We'll be working on that.